Sport Tech with Abu where you can listen anywhere on your portable devices. This is a series of episodes with different topics discussed on disabilities, different backgrounds, religious, sports, technology and people in the disability section because we're always trying to be equal and be equalized with everyone. So you can listen to this on your various platforms such as Spotify, Apple Music, Acast, Google Podcasts or any other platforms, online podcast services that are out there. And you're joined with your host Abu Bakr, the podcast called Sport Tech with Abu. So subscribe, like, comment and share. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. Let's rock with the Sport Tech with Abu. Hello, welcome to another podcast with your host Abu Bakishtiak and Abdul Rahman Arshad on the Sport Tech with Abu. And today we are joined with another amazing guest called Sarah. She is the founder as well and she's helping out with Movember. And if you want to grow moustache, please grow moustache like myself. Could be big one or a small one. But yes, so good morning, afternoon, evening, wherever you're listening to the Sport Tech with Abu. So after the break, we're going to be joined with Sarah. This is Sport Tech with Abu. Sarah Coglin here from Movember. Obviously, we're celebrating the hairy month for men's health. Movember is a men's health organization. It's our 20th anniversary. We've done this 20 years in a row of moustache growing for men's health, focused predominantly on getting men to change their appearance in Movember, grow that moustache, that facial hair that gets conversations going and raise vital funds but prostate cancer, testicular cancer, mental health and suicide prevention, because these are all issues that affect men in ways that are gendered and we need to consider what it is to be a man and and how these things play out. Is it increasingly important for men to speak about their relationship problems with their partners if they're having symptoms of prostate cancer? Prostate cancer is a really complex disease. It doesn't always present with symptoms, but some of the most common symptoms are frequent urination. I think From the point of diagnosis onwards, a man's journey with prostate cancer is unique to him and and really different to a lot of journeys that women and their friends go on with other cancers that might affect women. A lot of men, prostate cancer is something you can live with. It can cause all sorts of kind of side effects that are tracked and monitored like uh, constant urination, like I said, and fatigue. I think the real issues in a relationship come about when a man is diagnosed with prostate cancer. So a man diagnosed with prostate cancer has a really complicated, um, I guess, treatment pathway. So depending on the type of cancer he has, he could be advised by his healthcare professionals to do what we call active surveillance, which is monitoring the disease on an annual basis with a blood test, checking its progression, and, and really assuming that that prostate cancer is not going to grow, it's not going to kill you, and it's something you could live with without invasive treatment. Some men are lucky enough to have that journey. Others have more aggressive cancer that requires treatment, and that treatment is to remove the prostate, to castrate the men through chemical castration, so reducing the amount of testosterone in a man's blood, 
or system and also um, through radiology. And they produce quite significant side effects, all of those treatment pathways, as you can imagine. So it can affect your sexual function. It can affect your urinary incontinence issues. So lots of these things obviously then play out in a relationship. From what age can this cancer come in? And for someone that has been going through it, uh, what age does it start or what age can it finish? Or does it depend what age it comes at? So the guidelines are for men to start thinking about prostate cancer and having a blood test, which is a prostate-specific um, antigen test called a PSA, conversation with your doctor at 50. The biggest risk factors for prostate cancer are age. 50 is the age at which we would naturally start to get men to talk to their GP. Um, but the other two risk factors are genetic. So one being family history. So if your brother, your uncle, your father has had prostate cancer, that conversation should be being had much earlier at 45 and black men so so men of african caribbean descent have much higher chances of prostate cancer and we're learning more and more about the disease all the time so african caribbean men and men with family history should really be having those conversations with their gp from the age of 45 so what is the role of the female in supporting their partner when they experience the symptoms of prostate cancer? So I think the role always of a partner is to understand that journey. And there are some fantastic resources offered by Prostate Cancer UK and Macmillan to support the partners of men when we think about um, helping them through this journey. I think asking lots of questions and being able to get a man to open up feelings around the cancer journey is going through. Obviously, things like impotence and incontinence are incredibly um, debilitating and often filled with men can be filled with quite a stigma and shame. So creating a safe space where couples can have those conversations with both each other and healthcare professionals so that they know what help is available is really important. This is Sport Tech with Abu. someone has a disability or if they have vision impairment will it come in that as well or does it matter on what happened to the family no family history is the greatest link and the greatest risk factor so um, compounding factors are obviously always considered by any healthcare professional with a cancer when we're looking at cancer diagnoses but really the biggest risk factors like i said are age family history or men with african caribbean descent so i've broken the questions up as you may have gathered <laughs> so I've got the next couple of questions are on the depression and therapy support. So why is it that men should open up about depression to their partners if they themselves are going through depression every day? and the pressure of life. So you've touched on a few issues there. I think compounding factors like financial concerns, a sense of maybe my identity as a man or my masculinity being threatened because I'm no longer a provider or there's that extra burden on a man can actually ex sort of make mental health issues even worse, I suppose. Regardless of whether you've got a diagnosis of depression or another mental health condition, or you're just going through a really tough time, maybe you're lost your job or there's a relationship breakdown in your life. I think being able to talk to someone is well evidenced as being a really significant part of getting 
well. The person you speak to doesn't necessarily have to have the solutions to your problems, but giving you the gift of time and listening and empathy and understanding that you're going through a tough time can often be enough to kind of let the pressure out, I suppose, and start exploring together as to what could you do about this situation. So we use a model at Movember called ALEC, which is ask, listen, explore options and check in. And really that's about understanding that Often we we ask a man in our life, are you how are you doing? Are you okay? And he'll rebut that quite quickly with, yep, everything's fine. Asking's really about going a bit deeper and maybe reflecting. I've noticed you're not turning up to football practice or you seem a bit agitated at the moment or you're drinking more than you usually would. Some of these signs and symptoms. And then listening and being able to sort of not offer solutions, but actually being able to sit in what could often be an awkward or difficult conversation and and sort of acknowledge with phrases like, it sounds like you're going through a tough time, my friend, and I'm here to listen. And then ask that question, you know, again, the E is all about um, explore options or encourage action. So have you talked to your partner about this? Does anyone else know how you're feeling? Have you accessed maybe NHS services or workplace services, whatever's available to you? And then really importantly, checking in. So a couple of days later, sending that text, picking up that phone and sort of saying, how are you feeling? That was a pretty heavy conversation. Thank you for sharing your challenges with me, but how are you doing? So making sure we're checking in. So like on the mental health well-being, how important is to always check in person who's got cancer or any kind type of cancer to always check on their mental health well-being as well? Yeah, this, that's a great question, actually. There's such strong links between those going through a cancer journey or actually any kind of um, long-term disease, chronic conditions, and their mental health, because the two are so... If- physical and mental health is so intrinsically linked. And so, you know, you've got a friend going through a cancer journey or a friend with a loved one going through a cancer journey. It's so important to, to check in, to make that space and time. So not just a, a flippant kind of, how you doing, mate, and then let that go, but really think about, have I picked the right time? Have I made room for a decent conversation here to understand the difficulties they're facing into and make that feel safe and and I guess not too judgmental. So really important to be able to offer that to anyone going through any kind of chronic disease situation. This is Sport Tech with Abu. How often should a man or woman consider taking counselling? There isn't like a hard and fast rule. I think it's really important to recognise the signs of what might be going on in your life and how you might not be doing so well. So obviously we all go through stress and we have difficult situations in our life, but I think the key is to notice when that's becoming a bit overwhelming or it's affecting other parts of your life. So we talk about knowing what's normal for you um, and spotting signs of change in that. So maybe your sleep's being affected and you're not getting that sleep you, you so desperately need or because you're, you're, you're worrying or thinking a lot about what's going on or you're pulling away from social situations you would normally enjoy. So you find yourself kind of making excuses to not spend time with people. Maybe you're drinking a bit more than you had before or engaging in kind of more risk-taking behaviour. You're more irritated with your loved ones than you normally would be. These are all signs that things aren't probably where they should be and you should speak to a GP as that first entry point to seeking help. And I think the services on offer 
whether it be through the the sort of the GP and NHS pathways or a lot of the third party kind of charities out there with access to therapy online and therapy through different approaches, text messages and phone therapy. There's lots of ways to get help. And I think just make taking that first step, asking a friend, talking to a GP, doing some searches online yourself, you'll often find you just feel better knowing you've taken some action because you know that something's not right. This is the 20th year of the anniversary of November. When it first started, you had less people, but you must have seen the expansion (laughs) and expansion of the growth of the organisation. If you could tell us how quick it's grown. It started in Australia. You might still pick up some of my Australian accent because I was part of the the, the starting group. So we started with 30 guys um, in a pub in Melbourne, took some photos, put them up around the room and said, we'll be back at the end of the month and see whether this can change anyone's lives or sort of get any attention. And I suppose 20 years on, um, that 30 people has grown to more than 6 million people have grown moustaches for us around the world. We've raised just over $1.5 billion, which is an extraordinary amount of money to invest in some of these areas. But most importantly, I think We've started conversations about men's health that just weren't happening 20 years ago. We're getting men to think about themselves differently and women to think about men differently and the role we can all play, I guess, in a more equal and healthier society where men can speak up when they're not doing so well, where men can seek help at the right time and still be considered manly and strong and and seeking, um, I guess, a different type of pathway. So really proud of that journey for 20 years. It's been a hell of a an unexpected ride, but the power of facial hair has certainly um, fueled a, a movement for men's health. Are there more services out there that have resources to help people from ethnic minorities? Yeah, we do quite a bit of work. In fact, if you go to Movember.com, you can find some of the programs we're funding specifically targeting more at-risk groups or groups with poorer health outcomes, and often they are groups from marginalised communities. There are also some fantastic online tools. You can put your postcode in, you can put your background in, and it'll it'll send you up all of the kind of different services available to you in your area. I think definitely community-based services offer that nuance for considering different backgrounds. And there's a lot at a community level on offer. And then I suppose the workplaces people turn up in, there's also a lot on offer in some of the bigger workplaces that recognise the needs of different populations when it comes to accessing services. And have you ever tried going into schools, colleges or any industries that don't know the understanding of Movember and expanding the word there? Universities are one of our biggest growing areas. So we have university on campus. We have ambassadors. We bring them into the office for a day. We train them up. We give them all the messaging and they go back on campus. So last year, I think we raised just over a million pounds through students. And this year we're on track to do another 50% uplift on that. So definitely getting the word out through universities. And then in schools, we do have, again, if you go to the website, I think you can download a class curriculum based on which stage within the schooling system there is. And we can definitely do more in having conversations at a school age around 
testicular cancer, young boys regularly checking their testicles through to men thinking about how they engage with healthcare throughout their life. And also mental health is such a big part of the school curriculums these days. So adding some of the nuance that works with men into that curriculum has been part of the journey. But yeah, schools and education are a really big focus for us. And then the other area where we do a lot of work is in sport, because we see sport as a way kids do turn up in sport. Sport and community are so heavily linked. And as I said, you get more of that nuance in participation and engagement at that community level. I play blind sports myself and you touched on sports. How huge factor is it around sporting environment? And in the past, we've seen sports celebrities passed away from these conditions as well and these cancers. So how huge factor is it to take concern in the sporting industry as well? Sport offers a unique opportunity because I think there's so much about sport that's positive. We know that young men who engage in team sport, for example, have much um, higher levels of mental well-being and mental health throughout their life because that engagement with team sport from a young age and being part of something builds resilience, mental health literacy. There's lots of programs designed at that level. I think sport can also bring out some of the worst aspects of, I guess, community and society and rivalry in expectation. Um, So there is always that tension in sport to think about how it can be used for good, and it certainly can be, but also to think about some of the negative aspects that come out in violence in sport um, and sort of that hyper-competitive environment. I think sport's come a long way in the last 20 years in recognising the role it can play in better role modelling, positive masculinity, positive norms around what it is to be a man and a woman, and also competition. I think the other thing to think about is is what you said, like that idea of spokespeople through sport, ambassadors who come forward and talk about their cancer journey or their mental health battles, and they become great advocates for some of these issues because they're so looked up to in a sporting community. What advice would you give to someone who goes through the stigma of hesitation to discussing their mental health? Yeah, it is still so stigmatised. And I, I think it can be really scary to take that step and tell someone in your life that you're maybe not doing so well in your mental health. There's been a lot of work and a lot of shift in destigmatizing it, normalising it. I think what we hear from young men particularly is they're very happy to be there for their mates if their mates step forward, but they're all still very scared to step forward themselves. So I would encourage everyone to be really honest, as I said, about what your normal is, how you're doing and and take that step, pick that friend, pick that person you know um, that you trust and have a conversation about how you're doing because there's a pretty high chance that they themselves gone through something in their life and just by talking about something, we can take the pressure off it. And as they say, a burden shared is a burden halved. And often that is exactly what happens when you step forward and overcome that fear. But it is a real fear. And I, I really do appreciate that in my own life. What would you say to anyone who experiences difficulty in speaking to females? What would you say to them if they can't speak to females as easily or find it difficult? I think this is an interesting one. I- I'm not sure there's specific advice other than, as I said, find that person that you trust or feel comfortable with. And it really doesn't matter whether it's a man or a woman. I think building that sense of trust and testing a conversation, seeing how it goes, and then building on that again um, is vital. I, I don't think it matters whether it's a man or a woman. I think we often overestimate the importance of it being one or the other. But to be honest, finding someone in your life you can talk to is is really important. During lockdown, 
Sean, I'm presuming you had some barriers and two years. Um, did it make any effect on the Movember or did you do it face to face? And now we've uh, come over a hurdle and those all those hurdles now and we're back in person now. So did you have any hurdles? Lockdown was really interesting for us. So obviously during lockdown, I'm presuming you had some barriers and we're back in person now. So did you have any hurdles? Lockdown was really interesting for us. So obviously, like most charities and businesses across the world, there was sort of that initial panic of what will this do? Um, But actually, by the time we got to November in the November of 2020, and again in the November of 2021 here in the UK, I think people were looking for something to do, add some fun and some camaraderie to their lives. So the campaign of 2020 was one of the most successful campaigns we've ever run. And I suppose at the end of the day, you can grow a moustache sitting on your couch watching TV. So it doesn't require, it's not a mass participation event that requires face-to-face interaction. So we had already built a lot of those tools into the website We do operate in 26 countries around the world, so we're quite used to online activity and using the sort of tech tools that are available. I think we were well-placed to offer some fun and some camaraderie in in workplaces and amongst friends and come together for a good cause. So I would say that from a fundraising and a campaign participation, we did incredibly well through that period. As an organisation, I think we really recognise that face-to-face time, you know, we often talk about what are the things men can do to improve their own health and spending time with people who make you feel good, prioritising your friendships and relationships is vital for a long, happy, healthy life. And I think men often let other things get in the way of those friendships throughout their life. And so there was a real opportunity for us to highlight the importance of friendship and connection. And I think people sort of really got a sense of that during lockdown, how much they missed connection. And so we've done a lot of events and brought people together and convenings to really maximise our face-to-face opportunities now because I think people really value that. What have you got planned in the future with this organisation and yourself as well? We are hoping to keep growing moustaches for the next 10 or 20 years, raising awareness of men's health. I think the big focus for us as an organisation is to think about beyond the individual change we're sort of driving and pushing for in men. There is a bigger agenda in policy and advocacy looking at men's health. So at the moment, men's health is not often on policymakers' agendas. It's not something, there is not a men's health strategy in the UK, for example, there is a women's health strategy. So thinking about how women's health and men's health complement and support each other, um, I guess, driving uh, an awareness of men's health and the role that healthy men can play in society is going to be really important. When we think about some of the more negative aspects of men, when we think about some of the online misogyny and hate, how do we counter that? How do we think about good men turning up and role modelling to future generations what that looks like? We're thinking at quite a high international level of the role we can play in joining those people who are already doing good work and joining them together. And then on a cancer front, where I'm really excited about the next 10 years, I think by the end of this decade, we'll have answered all the questions around testicular cancer that were needed at a scientific level to probably move testicular cancer 
cancer from a disease that still kills young men into a disease that young men recover from and go on to live long lives. And in prostate cancer, um, we've fast-tracked that research by 50 years. In the next seven years, a man diagnosed with prostate cancer should not have to die from prostate cancer. And you think at the moment a man dies in this country every 45 minutes of prostate cancer, in the next 10 years, we should see prostate cancer move to a place of living with it and dying much later of something you know more related to old age. So they're really big transformational pieces when we think about the areas that we're focused on. Wherever you go, like, comment, share and subscribe my podcast with Abu Bakr and Abdul Rahman Arshad on the Sport Tech with Abu. During lockdown, I'm presuming you had some barriers and we're back in person now. So did you have any hurdles? Lockdown was really interesting for us. So obviously, like most charities and businesses across the world, there was sort of that initial panic of what will this do? But actually, by the time we got to November in the November of 2020, and again in the November of 2021 here in the UK, I think people were looking for something to do, add some fun and some camaraderie to their lives. So the campaign of 2020 was one of the most successful campaigns we've ever run. And I suppose at the end of the day, you can grow a moustache sitting on your couch watching TV. It's not a mass participation event that requires face-to-face interaction. So we had already built a lot of those tools into the website. We do operate in 26 countries around the world. So we're quite used to online activity and using the sort of tech tools that are available. I think we were well placed to offer some fun and some camaraderie in in workplaces and amongst friends and come together for a good cause. So I would say that from a fundraising and a campaign participation, we did incredibly well through that period. As an organisation, I think we really recognised that face-to-face time, you know, we often talk about what are the things men can do to improve their own health and spending time with people who make you feel good, prioritising your friendship and relationships is vital for a long, happy, healthy life. And I think men often let other things get in the way of those friendships throughout their life. And so there was a real opportunity for us to highlight the importance of friendship and connection. And I think people sort of really got a sense of that during lockdown, how much they missed connection. And so we've done a lot of events and brought people together and convenings to really maximise our face-to-face opportunities now, because I think people really value that. What have you got planned in the future with this organisation and yourself as well? We are hoping to keep growing moustaches for the next 10 or 20 years, raising awareness of men's health. I think the big focus for us as an organisation is to think about beyond the individual change we're sort of driving and pushing for in men. There is a bigger agenda in policy and advocacy looking at men's health. So at the moment, men's health is not often on policymakers' agendas. It's not something, there is not a men's health strategy in the UK, for example, there is a women's health strategy. So thinking about how women's health and men's health complement and support each other, um, I guess, driving uh, an awareness of men's health and the role that healthy men can play in society is going to be really important. When we think about some of the more negative aspects of men, when we think about some of the online misogyny and hate, how do we counter that? How do we think about good men turning up and role modelling to future generations what that looks like? We're thinking at quite a high international level of the role we can play in joining 
those people who are already doing good work and joining them together. And then on a cancer front, where I'm really excited about the next 10 years, I think by the end of this decade, we'll have answered all the questions around testicular cancer that were needed at a scientific level to probably move testicular cancer from a disease that still kills young men into a disease that young men recover from and go on to live long lives. And in prostate cancer, um, we've fast-tracked that research by 50 years. In the next seven years, a man diagnosed with prostate cancer should not have to die from prostate cancer. And you think at the moment a man dies in this country every 45 minutes of prostate cancer, in the next 10 years, we should see prostate cancer move to a place of living with it and dying much later of something you know more related to old age. So they're really big transformational pieces when we think about the areas that we're focused on. This is Sport Tech with Abu. During lockdown, I'm presuming you had some barriers and we're back in person now. So did you have any hurdles? Lockdown was really interesting for us. So obviously, like most charities and businesses across the world, there was sort of that initial panic of what will this do? But actually, by the time we got to November in the November of 2020, and again in the November of 2021 here in the UK, I think people were looking for something to do, add some fun and some camaraderie to their lives. So the campaign of 2020 was one of the most successful campaigns we've ever run. And I suppose at the end of the day, you can grow a moustache sitting on your couch watching TV. It's not a mass participation event that requires face-to-face interaction. So we had already built a lot of those tools into the website We do operate in 26 countries around the world, so we're quite used to online activity and using the sort of tech tools that are available. I think we were well-placed to offer some fun and some camaraderie in, in workplaces and amongst friends and come together for a good cause. So I would say that from a fundraising and a campaign participation, we did incredibly well through that period. As an organization, I think we really recognized that face-to-face time, you know, we often talk about what are the things men can do to improve their own health and spending time with people who make you feel good, prioritizing your friendships and relationships is vital for a long, happy, healthy life. And I think men often let other things get in the way of those friendships throughout their life. And so there was a real opportunity for us to highlight the importance of friendship and connection. And I think people sort of really got a sense of that during lockdown, how much they missed connection. And so we've done a lot of events and brought people together and convenings to really maximize our face-to-face opportunities now, because I think people really value that. What have you got planned in the future with this organisation and yourself as well? We are hoping to keep growing moustaches for the next 10 or 20 years, raising awareness of men's health. I think the big focus for us as an organisation is to think about beyond the individual change we were sort of driving and pushing for in men. There is a bigger agenda in policy and advocacy looking at men's health. So at the moment, men's health is not often on policymakers' agendas. It's not something, there is not a men's health strategy in the UK, for example. There is a women's health strategy. So thinking about how women's health and men's health complement and support each other, um, I guess driving uh, an awareness of men's health and the role that healthy men can play in society is going to be really important. When we think about some of the more negative aspects of men, when we think about some of the online misogyny and hate, 
How do we counter that? How do we think about good men turning up and role modeling to future generations what that looks like? We're thinking at quite a high international level, the role we can play in joining those people who are already doing good work and joining them together. And then on a cancer front, where I'm really excited about the next 10 years, I think by the end of this decade, we'll have answered all the questions around testicular cancer that were needed at a scientific level to probably move testicular cancer from a disease that still kills young men into a disease that young men recover from and go on to live long lives. And in prostate cancer, um, we've fast-tracked that research by 50 years. In the next seven years, a man died with prostate cancer should not have to die from prostate cancer. And you think at the moment a man dies in this country every 45 minutes of prostate cancer, in the next 10 years, we should see prostate cancer move to a place of living with it and dying much later of something, you know, more related to old age. So they're really big transformational pieces when we think about the areas that we're focused on. Do you have any stats or figures about how many people are getting these cancers or how many people die from it? Yeah, so in the UK, one in eight men will get prostate cancer in their lifetime. And as I said, a man dies about every 45 minutes. So it is still the number one cancer killing men in the UK. I think it definitely can be moved to being a death sentence to being something that men live with, but there's still quite a lot of component parts that need to be understood It's a very complicated cancer. It can be incredibly aggressive and kill a man very quickly. And it can also be something that a man dies with um, and not of at a much later age because it doesn't grow and it doesn't progress. And there's still a lot of biomedical questions around better understanding as to which one of those two disease types you've got at the point of diagnosis. When we think about mental health, uh, I mean, testicular cancer is still the number one cancer for a young man to get. It doesn't have anywhere near the same rates of incidence and it doesn't kill anywhere near as many men, but it, it basically is a, a disease for young men, 18 to 30. So it can be incredibly debilitating when it hits. And then if we think about suicide, as I said, we lose about 13 men every day. Three quarters of all suicides in the UK are men. And that is just a a worrying, worrying thing when we don't talk about it enough and we're not really set up to kind of tackle it. So mental health suicide prevention is, is still an enormous focus for us because it is a gendered issue that affects men in a way that needs to be better understood. When people hear Movember, and yourself, when you're saying it to someone, what does the actual word mean? Like when it first comes to you, first to your mind, saying, oh, Movember. <laughs> well, for me, it's a moustache in November. So, you know, it is about that mo that you grow in the month of November called Movember. So it's about changing. Our tagline has been since day one and it continues to be, we want to change the face of men's health both literally and um, figuratively. So we're on a journey to improve the health outcomes of men, and I think we're well on our way to, to doing that. So this has been Sarah Coughlin from Movember, and you're listening to Sport Tech with Abu. Thank you for listening to the Sport Tech with Abu today with various of platforms of interviews specialising in their special needs and various of topics that we cover every episode. So please give us a like, comment, share, and please subscribe to the Sport Tech with Abu.